It's flat out RC time once again. My name's Andrew Sill, and we are talking all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Coming to you live from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Big shout out to everybody that's listening around the world because I do know there's plenty of people in the US, South America, in Europe that do listen to uh, to this podcast. So really happy to have you on board. Another good episode coming up if you're into kit building or want to know more about kits and how laser cut kits are made and all that kind of stuff, we'll stay tuned because uh, Peter Goff from Scale Aero Products is joining me this week. We've had Peter on before. He's a master craftsman when it comes to building scale models. And uh, I reached out to him. You may have heard me a couple of episodes ago. I said, I should get Peter Goff on. Well, true to my word, Peter is coming up. But... uh, Look, before I forget, don't forget to press subscribe now uh, to the podcast so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. You'll be the first to be notified by your applications if you're in uh, an Apple podcast user or SoundCloud or a Spotify. or There's a whole heap of different podcast streaming platforms that, that share this. So it uh, doesn't matter how you're getting your flat-out RC fix. We're glad to have you along. But don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends that we exist. That really helps. Now... Before we get into our guests, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, before I get into what's been on my mind, I just want to share with you and just remind you about a special offer. And I've actually got a new special offer, so stay tuned for the new special offer for the Flat Out RC Gang. Uh, that RC World, the, the the hobby store down in Geelong here in Melbourne, uh, are running a special offer on NGH engines. We're talking two-stroke and four-stroke petrol engines. Uh, now, the two-stroke range uh, starts at 9cc and goes all the way up to a 70cc twin, while the four-stroke range starts at 30... I think there's three three different models, a 30cc up to a 60cc twin. There's something in the, in the middle there, I'm sure. Uh, that 60cc twin, four-stroke, oh, that'd be awesome. Uh now, the NGH engines, if you don't know a lot about them, they're Eddie Edwards at RC World was telling me how great they look. They said they really look like a quality uh, unit. Now, they've been proven. Uh, they've been developing motors, I think, since um, 2010, something like that, I think it was. But it's been uh, it's been around 10 years, a bit over 10-year mark. And, uh, and they're also doing um, commercial UAV engines as well. Uh, their engines, well, there's a few things I like about them. First of all, they're using Walbro carbies, so we know that Walbro is sort of the duck's guts when it comes to um, petrol engines, these small small capacity petrol engines. Uh, with a lot of their designs, they have the carburetor at the front, a bit like the old Mitro-powered um, uh, engines, um, and I, I just reckon it makes a lot more sense. I don't know why we went to rear carbies on a lot of these engines, which sort of consumed space, made it harder to tune, and whole bunch of other stuff. But anyway, it's right in the airflow at the front of the engine there and, um, uh, you know, quality unit at that. Um, with the twins, I think they're oh, underneath underneath the um, the engine, I think. So they're not really mounting them at the rear like some of the other manufacturers are. So quality is high and, uh, and, and the range seems to be really good as well and there's a lot in stock at RC World. Now, if you visit rcworld.com.au, that's rcworld.com.au, and you use the coupon code FLATOUTNGH, that's flat out O U T N G H, 
you will get a 10% discount on all NGH engines. So all you need to do is just visit rcworld.com.au, use the code FLATOUTNGH and 10% discount straight away, no questions asked, is yours. So big thank you to RC World, um, the team down there and supporting the Flat Out RC listeners to get access to some cheaper products, which is good. And speaking of that, um, as I mentioned earlier, that Peter Goff is going to be joining us, and we're going to get into that very shortly. But Peter, with his new new business, Scale Aero Products, is offering a 10% discount off all kits to Flat Out RC listeners, subscribers, etc. the Flat Out, flat out RC gang. Now, you'll find we'll, we'll be discussing in depth more about Peter's offering and what they have, but... Uh, Look, we're talking about laser cut kits and, and a few other accessories and stuff for scale building and good range of anything from like an old timer um, to gliders and of course warbirds, you name it. There's, there's an expanding range of kits and uh, you get a 10% discount. All you need to do is visit scaleaeroproducts.com.au and use the code flatout10. F L A T O U T one zero when you get to the checkout and you'll get ten percent off all scale aero products kits laser cut kits that is a great offer oh you know you can save a fair bit because some of these some of these kits you know start to get up there you could be saving 40 50 bucks on some kits now I'd, I'd take that and all you need to do scale aeroproducts.com.au and use the code at checkout flat out one zero flat out 10 so two good offers right there that can save you 10 percent off an ngh engine and then 10 percent off all kits at scaleaeroproducts.com.au thank you for those two companies for really giving the flat out rc community a discount 10 percent. i'll take that anytime Okay, so now we move on, and uh, I want to talk to you today. What's been on my mind? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to own up. I actually went for a fly. Can you believe that I went for a fly? We're still in restricted land here, COVID restrictions down here in Melbourne, and uh, but we've got some sort of ease restrictions that allow me to travel within my 10-kilometer zone to a place called Caulfield Racecourse. Now, Caulfield Racecourse is known as a place where they race horses, the Caulfield Cup, every October, I think it is. Uh September, or September, October, I think it is. Uh, the Caulfield Cup is run, and it's at the, at the racetrack. And it's in a suburban area, but in the middle of the racetrack, there was always a model flying club, and so you're allowed to actually fly there. It's in the council bylaws that you're allowed to fly model aircraft there. So it's a park. It's a public park. So it's a public park that you're allowed to fly model airplanes at. Anyway, uh, a friend of mine said, um, "Do you want to come for a fly?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know whether they're allowed to because the restrictions." Had a look at the restrictions, and basically, yes, recreational purposes. Um, still have to wear masks, all that kind of stuff. But uh, managed to get out there, Flumafomi and FPV drones, racing drones. Now, I want to talk a bit about racing drones because I don't talk about drones a lot. I always say we're going to talk about drones, but um, the majority of it, this community is involved in flying model planes. But I know that there's many of us like, that are like me that enjoy dabbling in different aspects of the hobby. And I'll tell you what, FPV drones are just a great other dimension to play around with. And it doesn't mean you've got to be into the racing through gates or freestyle or whatever. Just to put the goggles on and fly around is just a great... 
it's one of those experiences where you lose yourself. You forget that you're actually standing on the ground because it feels like you're flying around. And my friend Kieran was with me and uh, Kieran actually, he was flying his FPV drone and he uh, he normally sits down whilst he flies, but he um, when he flies FPV and he stood up and felt a bit uh, seasick, you could say. But anyway, um, you can always sit down if, if, if you feel better. But it's, what do I love about it? Well... I enjoy a different challenge when it comes to radio control. Uh, I did start by flying my aerobatic foam. I only fly small planes at Caulfield race course because there's not a lot of space. There is a club there. I can't, I don't know their web address, but there is a club there that is MAAA affiliated. But, um, but we generally fly electric planes, no, no petrol powered planes. So electric only, generally gliders and smaller foamies, that kind of stuff, because the bigger planes just don't really suit the flying space. And there's often people around and you know it's a public park there's dogs and all that kind of stuff so you've got to be pretty careful and we, and the, we do a good job at managing sort of the flying space and making people aware that we are flying and don't get in the way kind of thing but um the fpv drone thing as i said it's if you become a bird you're flying in the sky and you're you're up there and you're seeing the world from a different perspective and uh, as I said, I find myself—I uh, find that I lose myself a bit when I'm flying FPV, and uh, I've flown enough to be able to keep the plane in the air without, you know, the, the, the sorry, the drone up in the air without crashing. Um, so my, my my brain knows what to do and how to control the drone. So I suppose I can, I'm, I can enjoy the experience a bit better, but uh, it's not as hard to pick up as flying model planes i always found it was probably more similar to flying helicopters because i think helicopters was you know is a hard hard thing to master but um the drones probably a bit more similar to that if you can fly a heli you probably adapt to a drone really really quickly uh but i'd practice on simulators a bit before and, and got my head around it but it, it, it didn't take long at all what takes longer is just getting your bearings as far as your height um you know and that view through the goggles I use an analog setup for my some of my racing drones. I do have a DJI FPV drone, um, and the DJI goggles and digital system is is a lot sharper, I find, than my older um, Fat Shark uh, goggles. But I put the Fat Sharks on, and um, and yeah, still had a lot of fun. A funny thing at, at um, Caulfield Racecourse, it's sort of in a suburban kind of area, and there's a lot of radio frequency sort of interference. It's not a clean, clean environment that. I don't notice when I'm flying with my Spectrum gear and flying model planes, but I do notice it when I fly um, drones and the, the vision through the goggles. I get a lot of um, a lot of uh, static coming through, and it's not necessarily how far away I'm flying. It's just in certain areas. Um, but I know that I know that now, and I just generally fly circuits there because it's in the parkland. But I do go up to my holiday house and fly FPV sometimes, and um, really enjoy that where there's a bit more scenery uh, to to play around with. But I started to dabble with some aerobatics today um, and have worked out I've got to do a few adjustments to my drone, but uh, a lot of fun. Then uh, a friend of mine was trying to do some uh, chase footage, uh, which um, by the time this podcast goes up, I was going to air. So uh, get onto the Flat Out RC Instagram page and you'll see the near miss where I was flying my uh, RC factory Edge XL foamy and my mate with his uh, drone had the GoPro going and uh, just missed. Um, so we're just playing around and doing that that chase footage, which is actually harder than what it seems. It's not an easy exercise to do. Uh, it's to chase a model plane with a drone with the GoPro on and all that kind of thing. 
So anyway, drones are a great thing. If you're looking for a bit of a challenge, you know, you, instead of going and buying another model airplane, how about you give FPV drones a go, go, get yourself some goggles, get yourself a drone, and off you go. What would I be investing in? I really think the digital system is probably going to be the future as far as the goggles go, and I think that the DJI system seems to work pretty well. Um, so I do like that. Slightly different field of view, probably a bit broader than the, the, um, than the fat sharks, but... Um, you know, the, the video quality is something that you appreciate, but it's not mandatory to have a good uh, FPV experience, I find. This is my, my perspective. The challenge with FPV drones is battery life's not great. If you fly a bit slower, you can get a bit longer, but you know, if you're going flat out, you probably get two minutes out of a battery. I'm using 4S packs. Some people are now, you know, a lot of people moving to the 6S, but I'm finding 4S is more than enough power for me. Uh, it's one of those things that the higher you fly, the slower everything feels. But when you get down on the deck, everything's rushing past you. You're really moving pretty fast. So a lot of fun. So give it a go. FPV drones, uh, have a crack. And of course, uh, just keep on exploring different avenues of the hobby. Lots to enjoy. My favorite time of the podcast is guest time. And uh, so this next guest came into my mind literally on air two about two weeks ago or so, two episodes ago, where I was um, said, oh, I really should have Peter Goff on to talk about laser cut kits. Uh, uh, because I know at the moment um, with many places in lockdown, people are looking for things to do. And everyone just rushes to an ARF. And most of the ARFs are sold out, any decent ones at least. And uh, But there's plenty of kits that now we can access through laser cutting. And Peter Goff, is a man that started a new new business called Scale Aero Products, uh, who's also a master craftsman when it comes to scale building. I've had Peter's been on before, um, so if you've heard his name, you, you've probably heard it here. And he comes from New South Wales, I think Newcastle, uh, New South Wales, and he well known in the scale community, sort of in Australia, uh, has been to world champs and things like that. And uh, but a really fine builder and now he's just wanted to do something different as you'll hear and it's called scale aero products and of course he's given it a discount flat out 10 is the coupon code to get a 10 percent discount on all the scale aero products things now i didn't get i didn't when i thought about getting peter on i knew that he'd started the business so it's not a blatant plug for his business but we will talk a bit about it because it's interesting to to find out what he's doing but uh but i've got peter on to talk about laser cut kits and, and he gives us a good explanation as to how they're actually done and the work that's involved and uh so stay tuned some really good stuff with peter goff so over to my chat with peter well it's a pleasure of mine to have back to the flat out rc podcast a guy that we've had on the podcast before and you may have mentioned heard me mention uh his name you know i think uh, a few podcasts ago uh and his name's peter goff peter thanks for joining me thanks for having me back andrew well, I'm, I got you back for a reason, and that is because you've started a new business called Scale Aero Products, and one of the things that you're doing is laser cut kits. And at the moment, there's a lot of buzz in the air about um, laser cut kits, and and uh, and a lot of people are stuck in lockdowns and restricted in their movements, so have time to build kits. So we're going to have a bit of a deep dive, almost a bit of a tutorial session around laser cut kits. But before we get into it, tell us about Scale Aero Products. What are you doing? Well, Scale Aero Products kind of was formed, um, I suppose, one out of a bit of boredom from lockdown, perhaps, um, but more 
more than that, it was something that I've, I've wanted to get into the hobby industry other than just being uh, an active, I suppose, participant. I wanted to do something a little bit more and I've wanted to do that for, for some time. And I suppose most people that have ever dabbled in, um, I suppose, the commercial side of it would know that there's not a lot of money in it. So it, certainly money was not a driving factor for, for me. Uh, it was more the fact that I wanted to uh, give back to uh, to the hobby and, and, and try and uh, promote building uh, as well as keep myself occupied and doing something that I haven't done before, um, which was obviously um, produce for other people um, and provide products uh, and learn and learn something that I just I haven't done uh, a lot of um, outside of my own recreational uh, building, I suppose. I, I like what you're saying and I'm, it's people like yourself that really keep the hobby alive in a kind of way. That um, and I'm not just saying it to pump up your tires, but the I've always I've been saying this for years that it, without the efforts of people within the industry of of deciding to bring things into the country, whether it be importing ARFs through to then laser cutting kits, we just don't have choice. And whether you're you know we've got listeners all around the world, Peter, and so whether you're in the US or in Australia or the UK, no matter where you are, South America. Hi to everybody in Brazil. I know some of you are listening. Uh, that you give us the opportunity to enjoy our hobby, and so I'm always a big supporter of um, industry players. And and I think that laser cut kit section is filling a void that was lost. We used to see a lot of kit manufacturers that have all sort of fallen by the wayside as sort of the demand for for uh, kits has dropped and replaced by ARFs. But it is amazing the choice of kits that are out there now. That um, that people like yourself can bring to life, uh, and and we'll talk a bit about later about some of those kits that you're bringing in. But I want to give the audience a bit of an understanding about laser cutting kits. That how does it actually happen? Like, what is the process to actually go from bits of wood through to something that's uh, that's a kit? So, well, initially you you need to start with a design. Um, Fortunate enough for me, 90% of the stuff that I provide, uh, I've got designers who I've come to an agreement with um, for royalties, etc. as a return, and um, and they provide me with with AutoCAD uh, DXF files or uh, or DWD drawing files. Uh, from there, you basically need to put those, uh, and they they come predominantly. The drawings will only be the items that require cutting. They won't be the whole plan. Uh, so you, all your spars and your leading edges and wing tips occasionally won't be in those uh, those drawings. What you will get, however, is uh, you'll get formers, you'll get um, dihedral braces, you'll get ribs, uh, you'll get tailplane section. Uh, you may get some other items that can be laser cut. The problem with a lot of other items is they become too thick and the laser cutter does nothing more than provide you a guide to uh, to cut the item out. So predominantly you'll get formers and you'll get ribs, um, and that's how the drawings will come. Uh, and then from there you need to nest them into um, the size of the work that you're going to be using. So I use 900, we're talking in millimetres, I use 900 by 300 or 600 by 300 sheets uh, of plywood um, or 900 by 100 sheets of balsa. So what I do is I then um, I just create a, a box um, with that uh, with those dimensions, and then we do what we call nesting. So you nest the items into each uh, box, 
based on wood grain direction, uh, wanting to get the strongest wood grain, obviously, which is parallel um, to the grain is, is, is a, where wood is at its strongest. So you want to make sure you know what items are going to provide a structural uh, or need to provide a structural integrity to the model. Uh, and then you basically want to nest them into that area where there's going to be enough overlap uh, or enough overhang, sorry, of excess wood that you, uh, you're you not going to damage the uh, the sheets in trans transport or anything like that. Then what you need to do, some cutters don't, um, what we call break tabs or what I call break tabs. Um, so when you get a laser cut kit, more often than not, they the items or the parts will come in the carcass uh, in that complete sheet of six by three, for example. Um, and they do that by uh, inserting brake tabs. So in AutoCAD, I basically create brakes in the outer lines of the formers or ribs, uh, depending on what the thickness of wood will be. So if the thinner the balsa, the th the, obviously the thicker the line, um, and then the thinner the, uh, thinner the uh, sorry, the thicker the balsa, the thinner the brake, um, because you don't want to be uh, having the customer destroy the, the part when they're pulling it out of the the carcass. So uh, basically, that take that can take some time. Um, the Jerry Bates stuff that I'm working on, yeah, it probably that'd take me a couple of days uh, of nights to sort that out and making sure that it's right. But like any software, as you know, Andrew, once it's done, it's done. It's there for you as a resource. Um, you don't really need to go back and adjust it unless it comes out wrong or you've made a mistake. So once that process is done and you've got it, you've got everything in AutoCAD where you're happy and you put any uh, engrave or rasting uh, text in there, whether you want your business on there or the F1 or RIB1, whatever you want to do. Obviously, you'd like to identify all the parts. You then uh, transfer that to a DXF file. So um, most of the time, you'll work in a DWD or a drawing file, um, similar to Microsoft Illustrator, that sort of stuff. And then you convert it to a DXF file, um, which is what the laser machine can see and work from, because it has uh, a lot of point reference points uh, within those what we call polylines, and that's how the laser machine works out its uh, coordinates and parameters to cut. So once you've uh, got into a DXF file, it's pretty straightforward. Um, basically, I just plug that into the laser machine, um, download the file, and then um, make sure that I've got my origin set on the laser machine, so that's where the laser nozzle is compared to your uh, X and Y axis, wherever you'd like to start. Put the appropriate, the key is to put the right size wood and the right type of thickness and wood in there. Don't make that mistake. I've done that a couple of times. Uh, and then I do what they call framing. So frame is basically the laser machine will, or the nozzle will run around the, the extremities of what that cut will be. And what you want to achieve is to make sure that that nozzle is always over the wood. Uh, if it's not and it's moving out away from the wood, it means you're going to waste the wood because you're cutting outside the parameters of what you should be. And that, you know, most of the time, if you've nested it right, that should work. Um, and then you just hit go um, and it will cut for you. Obviously, I can go into a little bit more detail on how the laser machine works. But as far as taking from a design to uh, a kit that you'll get delivered to you, Basically, um, it's a time-consuming process, especially if you've only got one laser nozzle. Some people either use two laser machines or twin laser nozzles or laser beams, um, but I cut one sheet at a time, um, and then I move on from there. How fast is it? 
Um, it depends on how fast you want it to go. Um, I run at 300 millimetres per second um, when I'm moving the laser around, um, but it all depends, like manually. But as far as cutting goes, it will depend on the type of wood, the thickness of wood and the power that you need to use. So for uh, balsa, for example, if I'm cutting really thin balsa, you probably want an extremely low speed and a relatively, uh, sorry, extremely low power and a relatively high speed because you don't want to burn the wood and because it's so thin you can run around it much quicker um, and time is money. So the longer that you've got uh, items on the laser machine, it's costing money, you want to be able to get a good product out but also do it in the most efficient time. So I can imagine there was a bit of trial and error when you when you first got the machine and started playing around with some of the kids. A lot, yeah. I've gone through quite a bit of wood um, and there's only so many times you can recut over a piece of wood before all the bits fall out like a jigsaw puzzle. So, um, but yeah, there is. Uh, and density, I've learned so much in the last you know little while and I've had some help from, from quite a, a number of people as well. But I've, there's so many things I did not know about wood that I do now know about wood in regards to the density, uh, how much the density changes between in one sheet of wood than the dimension changes. I, I measured a, a piece of three mil uh, birch ply at all four corners and it was between uh, 2.8 and 3.4 mil. Oh, really? That was, that was the, yeah, that was the um, tolerance in, uh, in the laminations. So that's, that can be difficult and you can be chasing your tail a lot when you think you've got the right power and speed setting um, and you find you have to start having alternate settings in your parameter database depending on even the same, could be the same thickness of wood, but the density may change. You may be using basswood uh, with one cut for soft ply or um, a poplar ply, and then you might be using birch, which is a lot harder. So your speed and power settings will change depending on the type of wood, not necessarily just the thickness. Yeah. And I suppose that's where your experience in building would help in in knowing what wood to use where. Because are you being told what wood to use in the plan when you when you get that file? Yeah, um, Jerry Bates and, and, and Zeroli plans are, are quite um, informative when it comes to what type of wood to use, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, I'm not going to um, question uh, what wood they're using at all, unless, of course, it's glaringly obvious that it's wrong. Um, but you'll find a lot of a lot of structural areas. So, you know, the first three or four formers, uh, formers around the centre section, your main spar ribs uh, around the centre section, things that hold the undercarriage in, they'll all be uh, one-eighth birch. So they'll all be either quarter or one-eighth birch, uh, depending if it's a firewall. So birch, as I said earlier, being a denser plywood. Uh, and as you move towards the rear, all those uh, formers or structures that are not load-bearing, you can move into poplar or light ply, um, which basically can have more of a porous inner with a couple of birch laminations on the outside of it. So it's a much lighter ply, um, cuts a lot easier, but again, it's not something I would use for a firewall or, or anything like that. I'll tell you what, you've already made me appreciate people that cut laser kits because it's not as simple as just grabbing a file and putting a sheet of balsa down and saying, go. <laughs> There's a lot of thought that needs to go into it just to set up the machine and, like you said, the different types of wood and the different thicknesses, which I, I know I'm a very simple person, but I never thought about that, that uh, in great depth. But when I do, I realise that... Um, there's a lot of effort that goes into cutting a kit, really. Are you, are you cutting kits just on demand as a result or would you do a couple at a time? Um, I'm cutting to order at the moment. Um, I have cut a few in advance just to kind of test 
uh, test the system sort of thing. Um, I've cut my own kit that I that, uh, I think I mentioned in my last podcast that I was building a wildcat, so I've cut that. Um, and just you know, as I build that, I'll just see if there's any errors that I've that I as a as a cutter have in, introduced. Um, the, the designs are proven already, um, but no, most of them I'm cutting to order. Um, woods just, you know, with the, the whole delay in postage these days and shipping, I can't afford just to cut willy-nilly and then have it sitting there if it's not going to get sold. So, that, Actually, that was a question I was going to ask about the supply of wood because, you know, we know that supply trains have been stressed all around the world. You know, I've had manufacturers over in China tell me about the difficulty in trying to find balsa wood because a large chunk of the balsa wood supplies in the world are going towards uh, blades for... Um, wind turbines and things like that how, how are you finding uh access to, to to wood that you need for the kids so balsa is pretty easy um i use balsa central down in south australia um and they recently or earlier this year uh they shared to the to the best of my knowledge of um, what i've been told is they used to share a plantation in Papua new guinea um but apparently they've bought the whole thing now so the supply into Australia of balsa um, from Balsa Central anyway is um, who are the largest importer of balsa in Australia. In fact, I believe they are the only commercial importer um, of large quantities of balsa uh, and good quality balsa too. So balsa is quite easy to get in, in various sizes right up to 27 mil. Um, so it's quite Excuse me, it's quite good. But uh, plywood, you can get it. Um, I got my last order from Plyco in Melbourne, um, over there in over there in Fairfield. Um, but again, getting you know because we use down to 0.8 mil uh, ply and anywhere up to 10 mil. And when you're trying to get finished birch or um, you know basswood, it's it can be hard to get to come across because you know you can go to Bunnings, but I think we all know that, you know, Bunnings Marine Plied's there for the DIY and it's not something that I would put in a in a kit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Bought some wood from, from from Bunnings and, yeah, it wasn't suitable for the for the application. So the turnaround time on, on, on kits then, you know, because there's a lot of factors involved in, in, in you know, making sure you got the wood and whatever, what would be the expected turnaround time if you had to cut a kit, if, you know, from the time of someone placing an order? It's about, well, I've got on the website two to four weeks. Um, and I did that for a number of reasons. One, at any given time, I'm not going to know how many orders I've got on the go. Um, last week, I had to get six orders out. Um, and I think I've got one left to do, noting I have a family and a full-time job as well. So like a lot of other people, um, it is a secondary um, task for me. But uh, two to four weeks, and that allows for delay if I'm waiting on orders for wood, because um, I try and top up when I'm not on my bare, bare bones, but when I'm getting down, um, I'll, I'll make an order and that's anywhere from seven to 10 days at the moment, turn around for that. So, yeah, and then obviously, you know, what's out of my control is the shipping and the postage, um, especially through Australia Post. I try and uh, keep everything under 1,010 long um, and then it doesn't need to be curated. Yeah, so, um, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Um, it's just starting to pour down here, Peter. As I'm recording, I don't know if anybody can hear the degrees. Uh, what is where, where, okay, where are you located again? Up, up in Newcastle. Yeah, you're in Newcastle. Yeah, you've got great, great weather. Melbourne here. This is what, we're in lockdown, and I keep on saying we haven't actually missed many good weekends of flying because the weather's been bad, and we just had this massive rain shower. No, anybody could hear it in the background, but it's it's good it's good time for building kits. So if you need a kit, yeah. Scalero yeah. Products is the place to go. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. What you were just saying about the shipping there. You know, I used to, uh, I used to, I sold model airplanes for for uh, you know, two and a half years or three years or something like that. And the three D Hobby Shop Australia bringing in the three D Hobby Shop range of planes and the challenges of couriering model airplanes around the country was just, it was just crazy. It just, what I learned from that experience, if I ever did an online store, I just want to deal with Australia Post because it's just easier. Um, the shipping was more economical. So I like what you're saying about, you know, trying to keep it in, within the Australia Post limits because it's just, it's much more cost effective. But as you know, at the moment, our, our delivery timeframe is a bit out because everybody's buying stuff online and clogging up the system. But so the tip is then for everybody, if you want a laser car kit, you've got to plan it, plan ahead. Don't don't think you're going to buy it saying you're going to get it tomorrow. You're going to have to um, plan ahead. But the good thing about it, I, I suppose, well, are, are you with your kits, do you have to buy the plans separately or are you, are you putting the plans in the kit with the kit as well? So I've, I've tried to do something a little different from a few other places and I, I, I'm doing a lot of free flight and glider stuff as well. And the reason I bring that up is because for those, I am including the plans because I don't have the rights to those. They are Most of them are free downloads off the internet. So all I do for the customer is I'll just print it out and put a plan in for them um, at, at no charge. Um, whereas the Jerry Bates, Zoroli, any of the big scale stuff, they, are, they can buy the plan uh, with the kit, but the plans are sold separately. But I can in-house, um, I can print all the plans myself. So you bought a big, big printer as well. Uh, I've got access to one, yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. I didn't buy one, but I do have access. Oh, to they're one. very expensive. Gee, they're really expensive. They can be, yeah. And 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 I may end up doing that at a later time. But the turnover, obviously, at the moment, um, especially for plans, it, it doesn't warrant it. I just uh, I, I print them as I need to for now. Was it was it difficult to get the rights to to cut some of these kits? Um, I think I I maybe another reason why I waited so long to get in. And I'll be honest, Andrew, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was telling a few, I've been talking to mates about it for years. I wanted to do something, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh, do I want to go into some accessories? Do I want to do some custom work? You know, do I want to laser cut kits? Wasn't too sure. And then I've built up some reputation with people over the years, as I said, you know, in our previous podcast, competing overseas and doing that. And so I've actually, I've, I've had a, um, a long relationship with Jerry Bates. Uh, I've never met Jerry, but I've uh, I've had a lot of discussions, and he's helped me out with some builds over the years. Uh, and I did also uh, campaign one of his Hellcats at Top Gun. So um, Jerry's I've had a bit to do with Jerry. Um, I met Nick uh, Nick Zaroli a few years ago at Top Gun. So I've I suppose I deliberately waited, uh, not intentionally in a way, but I kind of I wanted to probably have an understanding of what I wanted to do. So I waited a few more years and I suppose now I'm at a point where I was like, well, I've got enough contacts out there. I think this is what I want to do. So I reached out to them um, and the Zaroli family were quite open um, and very forthcoming and were very happy to have me on board. Um, and Jerry um, took a little bit more convincing um, because Jerry's not one that will, uh, likes to share his IP often. Uh, and you can see just by looking at his website, there's only four of us globally that cut his kits now, and I'm the fourth. Okay, yeah. So, um, so, so he took faith the, in you. Yeah, look, and we came to an agreement, and a lot of it's on good faith. Um, but you know, it's all about reputation management, and I'm not in the game to uh, to try and you know win one over anybody. It's uh, I, I was fortunate enough to to have him on board, and I will um, and I'll use that. Um, very cautiously in regards to um, how I operate. 
Well, it's interesting, like at the start, you said that anybody that's been involved in the industry side of the hobby knows that there's not a lot of money to go around and I can I can vouch for that. And so the fact that you've gone into this knowing that it's not a big money spinner shows your integrity, really, that you know you just want to do the right thing for the aero modeling community, especially down here in Australia with the kits and that kind of thing. So, you know, that gives me confidence if, if I was a, a Jerry Bates that, you know, you're doing it for the right reasons. And plus the extensive experience you've got in building has got to help. Like the last thing you want is someone that's never built anything, but just bought a laser cutter and thought that they can go and cut a kit out and use the wrong wood and all that kind of stuff. But um, I can't wait to see, you know, what I'd love to see is like this whole community that, you know, buys kits in Australia and they start sharing the, 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 the results, you know, that we start seeing those, those end projects that help motivate us. Like I love seeing, these these kit builds of of what I like about laser cut kits is that they're often kits that and the ARF manufacturers aren't making. So if I was going to build a, you know um, build um, from a kit, it's not going to be uh, an extra aerobatic plane. I'll just come by an ARF. It's going to be the super chipmunk, which I always talk about in almost every episode now. Is I'll I'll, I'll build a super chipmunk because nobody's building a super chipmunk as an ARF kind of thing. So there's a lot, a lot of choice people out there with the kits. How many, how many, um, how many kits have you got on, on file that you can print now? Let me cut. Uh, oh, I'm still getting. I'm still finishing uploading Jerry Bates stuff to the website. But by the time I'm finished, um, all up probably there'll be over two hundred. Yeah. So yeah. That's that's the other aspect of the business, isn't it? Setting up the website and having to load everything onto it takes ages, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and then I've got to duplicate it for his plans as well. So yeah, yeah. Now, um, so okay, so let's now start delving into that area of you know, I'm serious about getting a kit. Um, what comes with with a typical kit? You know, what what with it, and what 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 doesn't come with it that I have to buy extra? Yeah, so you, you, there's three options that uh, you can find on the internet. Basically, you'll have what they call a short kit. Uh, you'll have what they call a semi-kit, um, has varying names to it, and also a full wood kit. Um, I think the full wood kit's quite self-explanatory. You get everything that you need to build the aircraft. Um, and you may also get things like push rods, fuel tanks, undercarriage, wheels, things like that, depending on the manufacturer, depending on what they want to provide the customer. A semi-full kit um, or a semi-wood kit may give you everything bar the sheeting so it may give you the spars the, the the dihedral braces the leading edges the trailing edges the wing tips as well as everything else that i mentioned before that you get in a short kit but you might not get the sheeting so for example as a rolly uh p40 for example 90 92 inch airplane um and it would take probably about 15 to 20 sheets of balsa roll up to sheet the entire airplane in. uh you won't get that in a semi kit you will get that in a forward kit and then you've got the short kit and a short kit is the way i describe it is all the painful time consuming parts of scratch building uh to get it to kit form ready to build we do for you so any so your ribs your wing ribs your tar ribs uh your vertical stab your rudders your elevators your ailerons your formers your dihedral braces um cow rings if the cow needs to be built from scratch undercarriage doors that is what you'll get in a short kit but it varies it depends on the airplane depends on the level of design that's gone into that kit 
some short kits you'll get a little bit less, some short kits you'll get a little bit more. Yeah. And generally with your kits, what do you, where, where do you categorise yours? Uh, they would be for, for the Jerry Bates and the Zeroli stuff, you'd be probably on the um, – you. It's obviously definitely a short kit, um, but you would normally get dihedral braces and wing tips uh, and things like that on top of the standard ribs and formers, but you won't get uh, leading edges, you won't get trailing edges, uh, anything that you can just go out and buy from your local Balsa Central, for example, um, any stick balsa, any spruce for your stringers, you won't get any of that. Makes sense, makes sense. Now, okay, so now let's move on, right? So what we're going to try to do is a bit of a step-by-step of um, to, to give some people that have never built from a kit, and there's, there's plenty of us out there that haven't built from a kit. I, I have because you've been in the hobby long enough, you've had to build from a kit, and I know that you've got one of the Aeroflight Aries kits there, which I'm very, very tempted to buy because I have one here. My mum mm-hmm. actually keeps on reminding me because I had it way back when I used to live with my parents when I was younger, and she always calls that yellow plane. Have you still got the yellow plane around? I said, I actually still do have that yellow, yellow plane. It has got a broken tail on it. But, um, you know, the Aries is something that I, that I built and and, and is, I'm keen to sort of replicate. But let's just go through that process of building a kit. Um, okay, so first of all, for anybody that's never built a kit before, what kind of model do you recommend as their first uh, sort of foray into kit building? Um, well, are we... If we separate their flying ability with their building ability, I would say anything that has uh, a standard wing cord, so it's not a tapered wing cord or anything like that, so all your ribs are the same size, um, box fuselage, like let's say an ugly stick. Um, An ugly stick would be a good example because you don't have a lot of compound curves. You don't have... um, you don't need to jig the aircraft, and when I say jig, a lot of the time you need to find a, a, a good reference point to be able to keep everything straight. Um, and But with a box fuselage, you can do everything off the board. Um, when you've got a warbird, for example, you're going to have a tapered fuselage from nose to tail, and you're going to have a tapered wing from centre section to tip. Uh, so I would recommend probably uh, something like an ugly stick would be a good start. Um, or a low-wing scanner-type model. I think everyone's familiar with a scanner, those sort of designs. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it depends on how good you are at interpreting a plan because that's the key. I think preparation is probably uh, the most important thing to set you up for success. That is true. That is true. That makes makes a lot of sense, though, I think, uh, as you are saying, with some of those... uh boxy kind of things and um and i'm just looking at your website now you know the the midwest aero sport 40 looks like the perfect to stick like plane yeah um, i just sold one to a friend uh, a couple of days ago actually um i drew that myself um off the midwest plan because you can't get uh, any cad files for that okay um, and and he's he would be a perfect candidate for the type of pe- people you're talking about he's a member of our club who uh is just starting out he's solo um but he's been building core flute airplanes um, and they've been quite successful, um, but he wanted to uh, do a conventional bowl supply uh, build, and he asked me, well, what do you recommend? And I said, well, I think this is what you should go for, something like this. And, yeah, we went from there, and now he's he just started building it today, actually. Perfect. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, so then next thing on my list is uh, 
Okay, let's talk about now we're we're gonna start the build. All right. And let's before we start the build, you've got to set up your building area. Mm-hmm. Uh so give us a bit a few tips on bench tops, what you recommend, you know, whether you you, you need a, a surface that you can put pins into or what. Tell us a bit about setting up your bench ready to build a kit. Uh, I would recommend, yes, having a bench that you can put pins into, so just like a bit of chipboard or something, um, but it needs to be flat. So I actually use an old dining table, um, an old um, teak dining table that we've got um, that I've then put a thin uh, lamination of um, chipboard over the top of it and screwed that into it and and glued it down um, and made sure that that's nice and flat. So the first thing you want to do is have a flat building board. Um, Then the second thing you want to do is lay your plans out. Um, And the first thing is you need to understand the plan. There's no point jumping in um, and just start building the tail of the fuselage or the wing without actually having an understanding and going through how that model is going to be built because there may be some kits that you need to build something before something else. Um, for ease of access, for understanding how that may join to another piece um, for whatever reason it might be. But the first thing you need to do is understand the plan, and that's why I say preparation is key. Um, If it's a kit, get all your pieces out, make sure they're all there, make sure they're all fit. Um, So I would dry fit everything, and that is one thing that I'm trying to strive as a laser cut uh dealer now is to provide kits that people can put together as a Meccano set without any wood uh, without any glue to make sure that they understand how it goes together how all the pieces fit with uh and making sure that they do fit um so once you've done that once you understand how the plan works uh, how the, how the uh, model's going to go together you've got all your pieces and you understand that where everything goes and what all the numbers represent you then want to make sure, well, what I do is I put glad wrap down. So I'll wrap the table in glad wrap um, once the plan's down to ensure that you don't stick anything to the plan because the glad wrap obviously will just peel off the glad wrap and your, your plan will be good for another day. And no one wants plans stuck to the bottom of your uh, wing spars. I've done that. Most people have. I've done that too, yeah. So, and you shouldn't have to pin a lot of stuff. So normally the best place to start is with have a datum point. So if you're going to build a wing first, for example, a, a spar is always a good datum point. So always lay your spar down, fasten your spar, uh, whether that be with pins, tape, however you want to do it. And then, as I said, put all your ribs out, make sure they're all going to line up. And then I use, I still use CA for anything that's porous that you can glue, so balsa. Um, I'll use CA, but a lot of people use PVA or C23 which is a, a clear-drying wood adhesive. Been around for a long time, C23. It's a good, I think, aero, aero fly. Yeah, I, I think I've actually got a tube of it somewhere. It's probably gone hard. Yeah, yeah no, that, I, learned to, I learned to build with, with C23. It's good when it sticks your fingers and you roll it up into balls. Yep, um, um, so, yeah, basically just be very systematic with your process. Um, make sure that you've got a good starting point because if you don't have a flat board, you won't have a, you won't have a straight aeroplane. Um, and you want to be able to understand what you're going to do first. Um, so whether it be a wing panel um, or a tailplane, uh, and then just, yeah, take your time, um, go through. I tack everything off. Um, I don't 
you don't need to use a lot of glue either. That's a lot of people's mistakes will be they'll use a lot of glue in areas you don't need to. I've had planes that I haven't built that um, you look inside down through the wing tube or something like that and it's just, it's like they've poured it in with a t- tablespoon. Uh, you don't need to put a lot of glue into areas. You just need to make sure that things are glued sufficiently um, and use the right glue, obviously, as well. Well, actually, on that point, um, and it's something I'm really interested in about glues. You know, I've got a fine selection of CA glue, you know, super thin, thin, medium, you know, thick, all that kind of stuff. But, and, and you talk about you know, people using PVA glue and that kind of stuff. You said earlier that you don't mind CA in porous um, sort of situations like with um, with balsa. And it makes a lot of sense. You can, like, you can slap out a wing really quickly, lay it all up and just go and, dribble some CA between all the joints and, and I find that with balsa, yeah, it's a beautiful glue to use. But what about when you're talking about plywoods and the harder woods and things like that? Um, you know, do you use different glues for different areas? And we know, you know, people have got the 30-minute the, the, the epoxy kind of thing for some really strong joints, you know, tail planes, things like that. But what's your generally go-to with when it comes to glues for different areas of the plane? So if it's uh, any load-bearing areas, like uh, if I'm doing – undercarriage bearers uh, into, um, you know, plywood wing ribs or firewalls or anything that's going to, you know, holding the tank, probably F1 to 4, the, the forward wing saddle and aft wing saddle uh, areas. I'll use Hysol, um, which is a Loctite product. Uh, DA Australia sell it. Uh, Hysol 9462 comes in a two-part tube, just a plunger tube, um, and you can get mixing nozzles and the applicator gun as well um, and it mixes itself through the mixing nozzle and it comes out a chalky white color it's a 24 hour glue but you can almost drill and tap it when it's dry yeah heard it's really um, good. yeah i used to use epoxy um 30 minute 24 hour but since i got hold of high soul a few years ago i haven't looked back um, i'll always use high soul um, but i won't use it in areas like anywhere from the aft wing saddle to the forward tail bulkhead, I'll probably just use um, C23. Um, like if I'm gluing stringers into a tapered fuselage, I'll probably just use C23 and tape them up um, to the to the uh, former and let them dry off overnight. And then if I'm using um, a retractable tail wheel in that tail section, then I'll probably use um, a little bit of high sole in there. It's not that heavy. Isol, um, no heavier than epoxy, but again, use it sparingly enough where you're not trying to overcompensate for no reason uh, because there's no need. Um, but yeah, high sole and Zap are probably my two go-to products that I use more often than not. What about hand tools? What are your recommendations around hand tools when, when building a kit? Um, we, you can't go past a whole bunch of... Uh, um, doctor's scalpels are always good. Um, I just use um, standard medical grade. You can buy them off the internet. Um, I think they're a number 12 blade um, knife. Um, obviously, your standard uh, one meter, 12 inch and six inch rule. A square is another good one. Um, weights, you can never have enough uh, lead weight um, to be weighing, keeping things on the board and keeping things straight and uh, and uh, stable uh, and clamps. If you ever go to another pilot's drawer, always take the clamps because you can never have enough of them. Um, 
And things like jeweler saws, um, scroll saws, not that they're a hand tool, but if you know, common tools in the workshop, I think a belt sander and a bandsaw uh, and a Dremel are probably your three items that you couldn't go without if you're going to build a kit. Um, but I reckon, yeah, knife, yeah, knife, square, clamps, rulers, and I reckon you're about there. Sanding block, obviously, is another one. Yeah, it always help. Yep, varying grades, but uh, but yeah, you work it out too. It's amazing every build you do, you always buy another tool. <laughs> it was part of the fun, though. It's, it's like. <laughs> There's nothing like having a nice tool and getting the opportunity to use it on a nice fresh piece of wood. Mm. Uh, yep. The um, okay. So when it comes to you know undertaking the build now, you know, do you have a, a an order that you suggest to build? You know, do you build your wings first, or do you be, build your fuselage, or it doesn't really matter? Nah. Look, I mean, I think you asked me this question last time regarding, uh, and I think I said I build wings because I can't. Uh, I hate building wings. But ultimately, it's your choice. Um, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to what you would build first, other than the preparation. As I said, if you have, and what a, an example of that might be, um, if you if you've got your engine choice, and but you're not really sure how your cooling's going to go and how that's going to affect everything, well, then you might want to or let's say you don't have your engine choice, I should say, and you're not sure how for a Mustang, it can be very difficult on what engine choice you want to go for for a Mustang because it has quite, although it's got a deep fuselage, it's quite narrow. So unless you recess the engine back and put uh, prop extensions uh, on the aircraft or on the engine, you're going to have the engine sitting out the bottom. So if you want to make it look more scale and recess it back, you may want to start researching into doing the fuselage first so you can understand how all that cooling exhaust setup's going to be. So it allows you to then forecast what engine you're going to do and that, that'll involve how much weight is going to be distributed across the aircraft. Where do I need to sh uh, shed down? You know, if I've got a really tail-heavy aeroplane, do I need to put a heavy engine in or do I need to vice versa? So it just depends if there's any unknowns in the build that you want to explore. Um, if you have, I would like to think your engine and retract, uh, if it's a Warbird, your engine and retract selection is already there. Your survey selection is already there before you even start the build. Um, in, in if you've done your research um but ultimately you can start from anywhere that's an interesting point though because none of your kits come with manuals do they uh i'll need to confirm that because i believe that the jerry bait stuff does have construction manuals because i've seen them in what i've done myself um but i'm waiting on some more um files to be sent to me from jerry one of which is the plans with construction manuals but normally no they don't would be the safest answer. Well, so that, that what that means is that you, you know you get your you get your, your your kit parts, you get your plan, and so you, like you said, you know you got to do your research before you even start building to get your head around what you need to do. But there's going to be areas of the build where you've got to have to work it out. You know, like how am I going to put this tail wheel on and connect it up with a you know some steering and that kind of stuff. Um, where do you go, you know, to, to find, to do that research? And of course, we've got the, the internet and things like that. But, you know, what are your suggestions on when you get stuck with something? Have you got any good places to go to, to, to work things out? Well, seeing, you know, as you know, I'm predominantly a scale guy. So I'll talk to that. Um, I don't have an answer for the other uh, interest groups when you're talking aerobatic and other things that they get caught up on. But 
anything that uh, I think for the standard aeroplane that you're putting together, and if we were to talk about an aerobatic model or a glider or something like that, um, that doesn't have retracts and, you know, there's just less complication to it, you could probably just go, yeah, go to go on the internet or ask some friends at the flying field. Um, for scale-related stuff, I don't think you can go past RC Scale Builder, which is an online forum in the States run by uh, Mike Chilson. That's been going for a long time and has got tens of thousands of members. And there's basically nothing in there uh, that oh, you wouldn't be able to get information on. So ultimately I'll go to there if, if, if I'm stuck, um, but I've, I'm very lucky that I've got, as I've said before, a lot of people around me that are more experienced than me um, and that I can reach out to um, if there's something that I'm stuck on. And there has been, like, as an example, these bloody wear away doors. So as simple as they are, trying to work out how to put the, um, because of the geometry, how to hook the gear doors up to the undercarriage legs. Now, I've been looking on my Harvard and going, well, I can just do that, but I couldn't compute that from what I was looking at into my brain onto the wear away. It just wasn't working for me. And then I just had a friend come over pre-lockdown. I said, mate, how the hell do I do this? And within five minutes, he went, just do it like this. And he actually demonstrated it on a piece of string on how it would work. And I'm just going to then make up. I needed three three points of movement, not two. And I just could not compute that in my brain at the time. So, you know, as simple as that, you can just re, you know, reach out to people that you know. Um, and Google, like you said, the internet has got some great – it's got a lot of crap as well. Um, but you'll quickly filter out what will work and what won't. Well, the um, a few weeks ago, I had Bray Melton on the podcast, and, and Ray's tip was he would he said whenever I get stuck with a build because he's, he's doing a lot of scratch building stuff like that, and he didn't know what to do, you know, with you know how do I hook up the flaps or do whatever, he'd actually go back to the full size aircraft and research what they did, like he put slats on a plane or something like that, and he didn't know how he was going to do it. But so, and he worked out actually from the full size how to do it and just scale that down and worked out, you know, how everything needs to work. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's we're lucky in the day and age that we live in that we've got access to information. Uh, there's people who've done YouTube build threads and things like that. So there's plenty of uh, plenty of places to go, really. But as you said, you just got to filter out the rubbish. And uh... and a good example of that is, you know, we overcomplicate, as modelers, I think we overcomplicate it sometimes. And we try and make it neater than it should be. And we try and make it easier than it needs to be. And in turn, we make it harder and worse than what it should be. Mm -hmm. And an example of that, years ago, I built a P47. And it's got some um, just some clamshell doors that close up when the main undercarriage fold up. So just inner gear doors. And so, I found, so you know, a lot of people, and I've done it on Thunderbolt since, you put either Robart uh, air, air rams to operate them or some servos. So all the, the full size, all it had was a cable and a hook and the wheel actually pulled the door up the when door. the wheels – simple, you know. Like, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It'd be a lot yeah. easier, wouldn't it, than having to worry about, you know, air systems and things like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that idea. That's what I need from a jet. Yeah. Make it a lot easier. Reduce the weight. Have you ever tried to do that, though, on a retract, put um, like a cable system on the gear doors? Um, yeah, I did once. Um, I think 
I can't remember. I think I did it on a P40 because P40 is not set up that way. It has uh, two um, control arms that pull the um, the gear doors up, I believe, from memory. But I think I used, and I do it on tail wheels a lot. My P47, I did it on, and I know a lot of people that do. Um, you just run a piece of um, a fishing trace or fishing uh, line from one to the other in a loop, and then uh, you just have some spring steel, some soft spring steel that will uh, that you glue to the inside of the gear door and to the fuselage. So it's soft enough that the wheel will allow the um, steel or the spring steel to yeah. bend and close the gear doors. But as soon as it releases off, the wheel releases off the uh, fishing line, the gear doors will spring open. And it's basically kind of like, a, a you know, how mechanical retracts sort of used to, or spring air retracts, I should say, used to work. You know, you'd have air up and then spring down. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And of course, with the kit, you know, I always find the enjoyable part I find is the early part of the build phase where you're starting to see this thing come to life. You know, when you've got the, the, the wings all uh, glued together, not covered, it looks really great. But as we know, the further you get into the build, the more tedious things can become. Uh, and we know that it takes time. Like there are some kits that you could, you know, in a weekend, you could probably get your fuselage built and, and be well on your way with the wings, for example. What's your thoughts on how you should approach that time frame that you give yourself to build these kits? Uh, you know, do you think you should uh, just keep on powering along or just do it at your own pace? Well, it depends on how familiar you are with building, how familiar you are with the design that you're building uh, and how much time you have. I'm probably not the right person to tell anybody to keep powering on because I've taken a long time to build uh, various amounts of aeroplanes uh, due to other things in my life. But my dad taught me once, if you just do 30 minutes a day, if that if you can at least be in the workshop for 30 minutes a day, you will continuously move forward. Um, but ultimately for, uh, you know, for what, like one of the kits I sell, you're looking around 12 months. Um, for, you know, for anybody who's a relatively experienced builder, um, and as you said, it's the last 10% that takes 90% of the time. So you'll get a plane framed up and even fiberglassed in four or five months, maybe six months. But from then to panel line it, to rivet it, to paint it, to weather it, to then fit it out, to then balance it, to then test it, you're looking at another six months. So, you know, I wouldn't be inclined to rush any of the process because obviously, you know, power on, yes, but take your time at the same at the same point because you don't want to, the more mistakes you make, you don't want to have to take two steps backwards and one step forwards. But again, it comes back to that planning process. So if you understand what needs to go where, when, then that'll make the whole process much more efficient and probably quicker as a result. Take, for example, fitting out your servos. So I know most people do it and I do it. I will sheet one side of the wing, which normally will be the top, and then I'll turn it over and then I will have the bottom where I'll fit out all the servos and run the cables and make sure everything's where it needs to be, make sure your ailerons are working, actually test everything. So you get all your ailerons in. You don't have to have them glued in. You can, you can see if things are binding or not, but get your ailerons fitted, get your flaps fitted, make sure all your, all your travel movements are right, your arm lengths are right, your servos are positioned correctly. There's no chafing, you know, cardboard tube, your wing ribs, so you can get all your cabling and servo leads running through. Put your lighting system in. Do everything that's going to be harder to do at a later point now 
Uh, and if though that's just an example of having that systematic process along the way and understanding what you need to do, yeah, it'll it'll come together a lot quicker. But like you said, if you haven't built before, that's where you kind of probably just it's going to be a trial and error race within yourself, and you'll make mistakes and you'll learn from it, and that's what we've all done and will continue to do. That's what I think. If 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 you're new into into building from kit, going something like with that Aries glider that you've got, or like you said that um, stick stick style planes, is just going to be well less investment from a financial perspective, and it'll just get you in the cycle of gluing things together and and the build process, and then you can step up into into bigger models. I've been encouraging a lot of my friends that uh, have are in this endless cycle of buying ARF after ARF, ARF, to slow them down. And I say to them, why don't you just go and buy a kit? Like you love, you know, I've got some mates that really enjoy the assembly process of an ARF. And I keep on saying to them, go and buy a kit. Because imagine it's like doing that, but even more, and for a longer period of time that will keep you occupied for a longer period of time as well. So that you're not looking for the next ARF to go and build and before you know it, you've got 400 planes in your, in your shed. And... um. And yeah, I think they're getting closer to the idea. And, and as I said, it's people like yourself that are giving us the opportunity to be able to do that, which is which is awesome. The process is the same, whether you're building a stick or whether you're building uh, you know, a, a World War I biplane or a Spitfire. Yes, you're going to come across uh, their more complex design, depending on what you're doing, uh, especially a Spitfire with an elliptical wing. It's probably one of the most difficult mm. wings to build right. Um, but the process is the same. How you apply your glue the, you know, how you're going to fit out your flight controls. Where's your centre of gravity going to end up? How are you going to, um, you know, how are you going to um, jig up the wing and make sure that it's all straight, referencing off your ribs and getting the right spacings and your thrust angles and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter what you're building. It, all the basic building concepts are the same and it's just as you build that next aeroplane, you'll learn new things and, you, you know, Take compound curves are a big example, especially like nacelles, say on using a twin engine, for example, like sheeting an aeroplane. There's a number of ways to sheet an aeroplane and you won't get that holistic experience when you're doing a box-sided fuselage or a solid fuselage aeroplane um, or a fabric-covered wing. But when you start to do areas of compound curves or um, sheeted areas, you know, you'll start to learn how to wet and... Um, heat wood to get it to bend where you need it to go. You'll start to use strip balsa. So you use strip balsa around curves and then you sand and fill and things like that. Those sort of concepts will come later as you expand your building knowledge. And you just got to get into it. You just got to give it a go. And you know, there's a lot of... I've had this issue with some people, not a lot of people, but that really keep on saying, oh, people need to get back to building kits. And the, the problem with the hobby is there's not enough people building. And I'm always saying, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Like talking about it ain't going to help the situation. And I think that now with the availability of laser cut kits, that clubs could go out there and, and you know, get a group of guys together and girls, whoever wants to get involved and say, okay, we're all going to go and buy this kit and we're all going to build them in parallel and help each other go along. And so then you're giving everyone a target and a goal and a, and a um, you know, a, you know, they can all work together to, 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 to help each other along that, that path. But um, I'm just going through some of the, the, the kits just to give people an understanding of the kind of kits that are available. Uh, if I just look at Jerry Bates as an example, I've never seen any of those planes or some of the, some of the, you know, some, 
some of the warbirds maybe came out as an ARF, but not many. But um, you know, P forty P forty Curtis P forty Tomahawk, Bristol MC M one C Bullet, a Cessna C thirty seven Airmaster looks absolutely phenomenal. A Curtis C forty six Commando, that's a twin, um, sort of uh, old warbird. You know, these are planes that you just look absolutely awesome. A Kit Fox. Oh, that is cool. The Kit Fox, a classic, uh, is it five, four, version four, five? Um, Kit Fox quarter scale. And that's 220 bucks for that kit. That's that's good value, really. Uh, and then the Zeroli plans, well, you know, they've got a ton of different stuff, haven't they? They do. Zeroli's more mainstream. The way I would separate Bates and, and Zeroli, Zeroli's more mainstream and I think probably it's just an assumption, but I think a lot of ARFs over the years have probably uh, been driven by the success of Zeroli. Uh, Lightnings, um, Spitfires, Mustangs, Corsairs—just your everyday run-of-the-mill warbird that you'd see out of the model field. Uh, whereas Bates, he's very more articulate in the designs that he does and the rarity of the designs and. For anyone who hasn't actually looked at Jerry Bates' designs, you know, I recommend just just have it. Don't even need to go to my website. Just Google Jerry Bates' designs and then go and have a look um, at his website. Now, he only produces plans. Um, he's a draftsman by trade, and um, he does some really, really good stuff. And there's over 100 and, 150 different aircraft, uh, sorry, different designs, some of which obviously are the same aircraft at different scales. Um, but that in itself, there's design uh, changes within each of those models. But uh, there's some really cool stuff, and it's really broadened my. I obviously, I, I, I as I said previously, I, I, I knew Jerry, and I've done a, uh, I've been around a lot of his designs, but I never really got a good appreciation until you actually go through each one and realise, wow, there is so many choices available. And they're all available. Like, every single one can be cut for you with effect immediately. Yeah. Nah, good good selection of models there. Um, you're also doing scale accessories, aren't you? Yeah, so that's another another one where I, I wanted to do something a little different. I mentioned free flight and, and glider or vintage RC um that I, that's been very successful over the last couple of months um but also doing scale accessories so i've got a big shipment of jp warbirds hopefully arriving in the next week or two it's in australia at the moment um doing ca- uh, predominantly cockpit stuff um jerry is over in the czech republic a few people would have probably heard of jp warbirds um a lot of good 3d printed stuff for a variety of different designs so I've taken a selection of those and, and, and imported those. And we'll see. I've got a bit of interest in some of those already. Um, and Robart um, have taken me on as a distributor as well. But um, Robart, I'm not too sure how I want to go yet, down that path yet on what I'm going to hold because anyone who's been to the Robart website would see it's like going to came up. Um, there's so many things on that website and what do I hold? And let's face it, I'm not a millionaire and I'm not going to hold thousands of dollars worth of stock. Um, and th- there's no market for it. There's a lot of other um, places that sell robot stuff. So my aim with the robot stuff is to complement the kits. If you want to set an undercarriage, if you want a spinner, if you want anything that may relate to the kit that you want to purchase, I can get that for you. That's probably the market I'm going to go down for Robart rather than have an actual uh, inventory 
in stock. It makes it makes a lot of sense. I had that same approach when I was selling my the three D hobby shop planes that I would have say a thirty cc model, and I would have the servos for that model, the spinner for that model, and the prop for that model, and that's all I had because I find um, you know there's a lot of people out there that say oh these hobby shops need to stock a lot of stuff. The problem with that is like you said, that a lot of these, you know, the Dubros of the world have so many different things and some of them are very, very specific use cases. And mm-hmm. you can quickly end up with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff on the shelf that will never, ever, ever be sold. I've still yep. got spare parts in my garage from when I was selling 3D Hobby Shop planes four or five years ago that uh, – more than that, probably six years, seven years ago, that, you know, wheel pants and, you know, because I used to bring spare wheel pants and, you know, lots of different little things, just little trinkets and stuff like that. And they're all just sitting there. And, you know, I've spoken to Ian at Desert Aircraft Australia that he sometimes does runs to the the rubbish tip to, to dump spare parts for obsolete models that are never going to be sold again. Uh, and so, yeah, just a, a little tip for people out there that, you know, I know it's a great ideal for your hobby shop to stock every Dubro product, but guess what? They won't be around very long <laughs> if, they, if they've got all no. the money tied up on something that's not going to sell. It's the same with uh, – so I can also get all of the Zeroli spare parts as well. I've got access to all the cows and canopies and, and vac form parts. But, again, they will be uh, provided uh, when an order comes through if someone wants them. I'm not going to stock them because it's just not worth my time. Actually, that was an important uh, – that was a question I wanted to ask you. I didn't have them on list, but uh, what we see is with some of these kits is, yes, you, you're providing all the wood parts, but you need a cow, you might need a canopy, that kind of thing. And we know that um, Zeroli has got – you know, there's people, I think, in the US that are, that, are, that are making a lot of the cows. So you're telling us that if you buy one of those kits, you actually have got the connections to bring the, the, those extra parts in for them, which is going to cost, of course – you're yep. saying you've got that that connection. Yeah, so I, so all the Zeroli stuff, I've got access through Zeroli. Um, I've got their rights to bring all their stuff in. They've um, given me the green light on that. Uh, and same with the Jerry Bates stuff. So some of the stuff Jerry provides himself, may that be a canopy or a cowl or something, depending on the design. Other, otherwise, he outsources that to Vic, uh, Vic Castellan or um, Phil Clark in the UK, places like that. So I can... Re- I can as resources reach out to those guys as well. So I can, and as I said earlier with Robart, so ultimately if you wanted to buy a Hellcat, I could get you a cowl, a canopy, set of retracts, some vac form parts and provide you a short kit. Oh, you're a legend. But again, I caveat that with things take time. Um, I don't have I don't have those things in stock and there will be probably a, you know, a, a weight on those, especially in our current climate. But you know what, I think that, that's something that we're, as aero modelers we're going to have to get used to is waiting. That I know that a lot of us in society just want, oh, I want to buy it. I want it now and why can't they get it to me now? And the thing is that, like I was saying earlier, we can't stock everything waiting for you to come, right? And and you're not going to pay for it. This is, there's always this trade-off, isn't there, about how much you pay, how much you stock, how much profit you can make from things. And, again, you're not doing it to, to buy a Ferrari. You're just doing it to help out in a kind of way. Uh, and... I think that as aero modelers, we just need to be, we need to learn to be more patient because I, like my friends ring me up and they'll sit there and go, oh, can't get this and you can't get that. Go, yeah, of course you can't because nobody's asked for that. So why are they going to bring it in waiting for you? Because they couldn't read your mind. You just wait. You know, I, I used to always say to people, if they wanted a 3D hobby shop plane, tell me well in advance because I don't know what I can get because I don't know what the factory's making until, you know, they don't give me their production schedule. I ask a question 
and they might come back to me in two or three weeks kind of thing. It's a slow-moving beast, the industry. So, um, and that's a good everyone. point Good point you make with um, and the advantage we have as, as kit cutters is we don't have to wait for an uh, external resource or a stakeholder to provide us with that. So if you want a kit, I know I have it. I have the wood here. I have the kit on file. i got the machine to do it. So it's just on my time to get that done, boxed up and shipped out to you. I don't have to wait for someone else and rely on them uh, to provide you with a, with the kit. So we do have, um, and I know there's others in Australia that do it as well, but we've got Fokker RC on board as well. Um, he's from Bo- uh, Bulgaria and he does a lot of kits. Um, so you'll find them on the website as well, a lot of big stuff. Yeah, I, I had a look. That, that's like third scale, ha- half scale. Yeah, fifty percent Fockwolf one ninety. That's a lot of wood. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of wood. That's a lot of wood. But I, um, I'm basically um, just a um, a distributor for him. So if you order a kit through me, I then um, go to him and he will ship it directly to the customer's door. Okay, interesting. And a lot of a lot of his uh, a lot of his models are you know warbirds, World War Two warbirds. It looks like Spitfires. Warbirds, yes. yeah, Spitfire looks nice actually. Yeah, I've always wanted to do a Mark One Spitfire, so I've got that in the back of my mind too. As a, oh, as a no, it's dangerous. So we've worked, <laughs> we, yeah, we've worked this out. Like what what Peter's doing is he's selling a few kits so that he can fuel his hobby because he's got he's very ambitious when it comes to the models that he wants. Yeah, I've worked it out. I don't know. That's just, that's just the advantage of it, I suppose. But uh, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to dispute dispute that because I, I've done various things in the industry. And I've worked out that if I did it to get access to cheaper, you know, cost price parts and all that kind of stuff, with all the other costs and the time associated oh, around the business, I was just better off just going to work and just paying for it. Oh, it was I used to, like I'd get free kits when I had the magazine to do reviews and, and you know, you know, foamies and things like that. And people go, oh, it must be great. And I've gone, I've got to go and grab that model. Often I've got to buy parts, you know, that they, I might have to buy batteries for it, servos for it, receivers for it. So it wasn't, you know, I, might, I, got a, I built a stick and I got the airframe for free, but then I had to spend another, like, you know, $700, $800 on parts to get the thing built. Then I had to build it and then I had to go and fly it and take photographs of it. And then I had to write an article and then it cost me $140 per page to print the article. So I'm, there's four four pages of my cost into that. It's like, oh, great. I'm doing a favor for everybody else more than myself. I just, could have just gone and bought a stick and built it. It would have been cheaper for me, you know, because a stick didn't cost that much money. But, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, so anybody thinks that, um, you know, there's, there's a saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And when you get given something, you know, if you get something for free, there's always a cost associated with it, which may not be pure financial, but time and oh, of course, all that yeah. Kind but of and, stuff. And, and I, the time and the effort, I do that off the back of the passion that I have for the, the industry and for scale in particular. Um, but more than that, I, you know, I'm doing something different. I'm learning stuff that I was kind of feeling like, you know, you're always learning. Don't get me wrong, but I was feeling like especially after the wear away, I was just completely exhausted. And I felt like, what else can I do that's going to get me motivated again? Um, And, you know, with the whole current climate, contrary to popular belief, I don't have as much time to build uh, with my current job because it's so ad hoc with my working hours at the moment um, because of uh, COVID. So it actually reduced my ability to be in the workshop. So 
it, again, like I said earlier, so that was a great trigger for this and I'll do it off the back of um, just the passion for the hobby. But, um, yeah, if I did it for personal gain um, at the cost that's involved in getting the setup going, yeah, yeah, that would probably not be an ideal um, way of doing it. That's true. Now, before I forget, I should tell everybody the website, scaleaeroproducts.com.au. Aero Products is A-E-R-O Products is P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S. Only saying that uh, for my friend Dominic, the head of the peanut gallery that can't read very well. Scaleaeroproducts.com.au is the website to go and have a look at. And uh, more and more models are coming online, aren't they, on that website? Yeah, they are. And um, and we've also got, you know, even though it may not have something on there that you're after, um, I've had a bit of business from some people in Melbourne doing custom cutting as well. Um, I recently did a 46% uh, Genesis glider um, and I've done a couple other things as well. So if you've got um, CAD files and you need cutting done for a particular kit, just give us a bell and, and we'll see if we can help you out. Sounds good. Now, you've, you know, last time we spoke, we talked about some of the models and the, we were away and all that kind of stuff. Uh what have you been doing for your own personal collection? Where, where are you up to with some of those models? Is the is, is the way <laughs> finished? Yeah, yes, it is. It's finished. Um, apart from just hooking up those gear doors, um, it's finished. Yes. So I've up until we went into lockdown, I've been flying a ninety-inch Waco um, Phoenix ARF biplane. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that. Two of my friends are building them at the moment, literally. It's, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. There are 37 missed messages on my uh, phone from the two peanuts, Dominic and Luke, that are building Wacos, and they're nonstop, they're 100 messages a day we're in this like, group, and they've both got them on the build. What, what motor did you put in yours? Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I've put the – so the We're Away has got the Sato 90R3 radial in it, yeah. 90cc. So I've got the Sato 90 in the Waco at the moment uh, as a test, and it, it's gorgeous. I've, I've been actually contemplating buying another radial and uh, putting that one in the Wiraway and keeping the Waco. I've only got it. I know one that there might be a 60 size for sale. Like these guys have been mucking around whether they get 60s or 90s, and I don't know, one of them bought a 60, and they think it's not going to be powerful enough and that kind of thing. What, what Do you think the 60 radial the 60, would be? The 60 would be more than enough. The 90 I'm flying it around on probably half throttle. Okay, I'm gonna. Um, I'll send them a message. It, to, look, to I, like I've said in the past, I think you know, within reason, having more than enough power is good because you can always throttle back and and, and prop the aeroplane accordingly. But the sixty, you know, it's not a heavy aeroplane, but it's a big aeroplane. Mm. Um, sixty will run it definitely, but you're not going to have uh, an absorbent amount of power. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but it will certainly do what it what they want it to do. It's a nice model. That, 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 that it's got presence. That 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 ARF. It does. It's actually bigger than I expected when I got mm. it. Um, it's it's quite a large airplane. But no, the Wirraway is finished. Um, I'm just waiting on getting a couple of more tanks through the uh, Sato in the Waco, and then it'll go into the Wirraway. I've done taxi tests on it. I've just got to balance it, and then hopefully it'll fly. <laughs> Looking forward to that, but you're a busy man. You've got a, a young son as well, and uh, of course, work and everything else in between. Man, I'll tell you what, you, you know how to load yourself up. There's always time. You just got to find it. Yeah, and so, so you've been you're up in Newcastle, so you've been in lockdown for a little bit as well. So when was the last time you were able to go for a fly? Oh, we've been in lockdown. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to preach to the converted. You guys and and Sydney have have copped a massive brunt of it, but we've probably been in lockdown for five weeks now. 
five, six weeks. So what are we now? September, probably July. Sometime in July was the last yeah. time I flew. Yeah, it's been, oh, it's been a while. We're sort of a bit more ahead of us, uh, the way things are going down here. So, uh, But we'll get there. We'll get there. And, and I think the thing is, as I said, you know, the weather hasn't been great. We haven't missed out on many good flying weekends um, during that winter period. But uh, I, I know a lot of people that are actually in their sheds building and, and to all those people keep up the good work. And I just can't wait to get to a flying event and see all these new models that are coming out that people have finished during uh, lockdown periods and because it's going to be uh, – a lot of eye candy, I reckon, uh, with with some of the words that I hear, you know, people that are in their sheds working away. It's ironic we we said this, we had the same conversation the last time we spoke, and that was uh, we'd be going know. over. The year. I'll tell over you year. what, it's 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 a weird situation, isn't it? To think, you know, it started to get to me in the past week or so. Where I look back and I think uh, I've lost two years of two years in my life of time that uh, I could have been spent doing other things like that and, and like you know, example i give is i bought a motorbike last year and and i won't be able to ride that motorbike in 15 years time kind of thing um because i'll be too old and the body won't be able to do it and i've lost two years of those 15 years i did hurt myself pretty quickly but um but I, i've lost time that i'm never going to get back and 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 it, it can really be depressing really when you think about it but in saying that that's the great thing about this hobby that it's all encompassing that it's not just about going to the flying club and flying it's talking to mates about models it's you know me doing this podcast is a great way that i i practice my era modeling and the instagram and the youtube and all that kind of stuff is a good thing that i enjoy doing as well and then getting into the shed and building and that's where i, I you know, as i said i wanted to get you on even before i asked you i mentioned your name on air saying hey i need to speak to peter goff about kits because it's such an exciting area for me and i, I don't know what other people think but there's just so much choice with kits and it's something that I, I look forward to doing. Have I got the time? Not not a lot. I don't have space, which is a problem. But for anybody out there that's looking for a challenge and wants to do something different, go and have a look at scaleaeroproducts.com.au and you'll get excited about some of the models that you can do. And and like you said, um, Peter, that you know if, if people have got a plan or something like that, um, you can custom cut that kit. So it's, it's really the sky's the limit when it comes to what we can do with kit building now, which is, it's just a, uh, oh, oh, question I've got to ask you. Because mm-hmm. you're laser cutting the kit, do you, are you getting any issues with burning of the wood that might impact the way you glue or anything like that? Because a, a friend of mine mentioned something like that, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but you'd know. Um, no, you need to, and that's where a lot of the trial and error comes into getting the right speed and power settings, as I said earlier, in regards to the type and the thickness of wood that you're using. Um, but the, the goal for me, um, and look, I'm no, no expert. This is people I've reached out to as well. Um, the goal is you want to get like a honey brown sort of finish where the laser has cut the wood but hasn't gone too hot and too slow where it's burnt the wood. So you uh, and if you get that, then you should be fine with uh, you won't compromise glue joints or um, the adhesive shouldn't have a problem sticking to the glue. Because at the end of the day, when you look at a lot of ARS, a lot of those things are all bloody uh, machine cut anyway. They're not uh, they're certainly not hand cut. Uh, so it's it, but you can burn the wood. You've got to be very careful. Um, and again, the type of wood, as I said earlier, can change uh, the way that you cut. 
uh, as well because of the density with it. You may have a certain setting, cut that thickness and type of wood, and then you do a different type of wood with the same thickness um, and it comes out different or it's burnt or it doesn't cut all the way through. And um, and that's a constant balance between trying to manage and try and, although you need to do both, try and manage your speed more than your power because that is where you'll probably see a more a, a larger difference is if you're changing your power settings, whereas you can control the amount of heat in one spot concentrated via your speed. Um, and obviously they are mutually exclusive, so the higher the power, the higher the speed because if you leave it obviously too long, you're gonna you're definitely going to burn the wood. Yeah. Back in the old days before the laser cutting, it was it was die cut, weren't they, the kit, the kits? Yeah, a lot of kits, yeah. And even, you know, sometimes these days there's, um, it's all routed, um, CNC routing as well will do it. Um, and you don't get any of those. I mean, look, it's laser cutting. You're putting a hot laser onto wood. You're going to get uh, a, a discoloration. Yeah. Um, and if you're expecting not to, then don't buy a laser cut kit. Um, but as far as structural compromise in regards to the glue, no, I've I have never experienced uh, anything. And again, it does depend on how you cut it as well. Well, this has been really good. You know, you know normally I finish this podcast, you know, with the, with the interviews asking you what your favourite model has been. But we've already covered that. But uh, in the in previous episode, but I, I thought of it. I'm going to ask you, like, what's your current favourite model to cut? Um. Probably, to be honest, the Vic Smead free flight range. So if you're not familiar with Vic Smead, he's around the 1950s um, free flight designer um, who did a lot of popular um, anywhere from 30 to 50 sort of inch um, high wing dihedral, polyhedral sort of free flight models. They're on the website under vintage uh, flight. Um, I like them because they're all 1.5 balsa, most of them. And cut them. I can cut a full kit in seven minutes. Um, really? Yeah, um, they're really as far as from a kitting a, a cut perspective. Yeah, I I love cutting those. They're quick. They're easy. You can do them in I'll bulk. One hundred forty dollars um, is the most expensive Vixmead kit to get there, and the cheapest is currently eighty dollars. No, seventy five. Austin Whippet. You need to update your pricing. Let's say eighty bucks. <laughs> eighty. <laughs> Seventy five to one hundred forty buck range for different thing. Yeah, gee. That's just, you know, what's interesting what I find is like, I remember back in the day going to buy some kits and some of your pricing is actually cheaper than what they were um, 25 years ago. Yeah. And like you asked me before, what, you know, what is a short kit? And as long as people understand what they're getting in the kit, um, and I do have a disclaimer on the website to make sure that you at least understand what you're buying or ask before you purchase, um, because there may be uh, the odd person out there that expects when they buy a kit that they're going to get a full wood kit. Um, and for that price, you're not going to get a full wood kit. Um, however, one thing that I did want to mention is probably over the next six to 12 months, depending on what's popular, my plan is to start doing full wood kits for those uh, kits that are popular. Um, I won't do it for everything. Um, I can do it upon request, but um, I think that'll be something else that'll be advantageous moving forward for customers is being able to get everything in one place. Yeah. I think what would be good is like when you get some customers that have finished the kits and maybe document the extra bits that they needed that can help you out and say, okay, this is what I needed to finish it off and mm. leading edges, trailing edges, whatever else, sheeting requirements or whatever, and then uh, that'll help you along. So uh, customers of Scalero Products, keep in touch with Peter. Now, Peter, it's been a pleasure to have you back onto the Flat Out RC podcast. You know, you are one of the 
the the leading. I'm still calling you Young Buck. You, you're one of the leading Young Buck scale uh, aero modelers out there, and I just I just know that your name's going to be popping up in this scene for a long, long time. And uh, I always thank the guests, but I, I I always applaud anybody that takes the punt to establish a business that brings pr- product to us because I know how hard it is myself. I've tried to do it myself. And for anybody out there, understand that it's not an easy thing. And uh, Peter, you're a legend for allowing us to enjoy this hobby. So thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate you asking me back on. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you again to Peter, Peter Goff. What a great guy. Uh, if anybody thinks that a lot of these companies in the industry are, are there just for the money, you're probably fooling yourself because there's a lot easier ways to make money out of uh, the hobby and especially in a, a small sort of cottage business like scale aero products that Peter's brought to life. So. He, as he said, he's enjoying the challenge of doing something a bit different. And uh, the upside of that is that we have a lot of lot more choice as far as kits and um, where we get our kits from. Uh, and so we'll keep on fostering that. I've got uh, another guest that's going to come on at some point in time to talk more about that and kit building and whatever. So Scale Aero products, don't forget flat out 1010 at the end there to get the 10% discount. And don't forget RC World and their 10% discount off NGH engines. Just use the coach. The code flat out NGH at checkout, and you'll get a 10% discount. So, thanks to RC World and Scale Aero Products for those 10% discount offers for flat out RC listeners and friends. We'll be back next week. Don't forget, subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube channel. Can't wait to get out of lockdown and shoot some more vids. Got some plans, but uh, need to get to the field to be able to do that. I uh, can't wait to get to some events either. Next year is often what's going to happen. So we'll just run the year out, listen to the Flat Out RC podcast every week. So big thank you for joining me once again. I'll be back next week. <laughs>